Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Michael Berg, a Doctor of Education candidate at the University of Liverpool. Uh, Michael, welcome to Lost in Citations. How are you doing, Jonathan? Nice to talk with you. You are a couple days away from your Viva, so a very exciting time or stressful time for you. Oh my God! Yeah, you know, it's, you know, I, you know, I knew it was going to be stressful, but I didn't know it'd be like wake up in the middle of the night at three o'clock and like, oh, I wonder if they're going to ask me that. And you know, what I mean, it's, it's, uh, I can't wait. You know, if ever there was a time in my life when I could just fast forward, you know, seventy-two hours, it's right now because this is. Uh, it's it's more yeah ugh, I hate it. <laughs> in in other circumstances, would you have had to go to Liverpool for this in person? I think yeah, actually. So it actually it actually works out uh, pretty nice actually. Like it, I mean, not that I I wouldn't want to go visit Liverpool, but I can imagine it being even more stressful with the jet lag and the you know having to travel and I save money on the, on the ticket and everything too. So plane ticket. So uh, yeah, no. Uh, I'm, I'm happy. Works for me. You know what I mean? <laughs> How many people are going to be on the Zoom call or whatever? Okay. Well, there'll be uh, an in-house examiner who's, uh, he works at the, the University of Liverpool. And then there will be uh, a, uh, an examiner who actually I cite a lot in my paper and who I actually requested that my supervisor invite to be an examiner. Uh, Peter McIntyre is his name. He's pretty familiar with yeah, him. Yeah, no way. I actually, I actually interviewed him. So by the time this interview comes out, uh, an interview with Peter McIntyre will be on the website. That's that's a small world, man. Yeah, that's the no man. Way. He's the man. Oh man, he is the man. I, well, let me. Let, I want to hear that. I want to hear that uh, that interview, man. Actually, that would be. You know, what I mean, like it's it's good to kind of. I mean, I've been reading a lot of his research re- recently, just to kind of familiarize myself with. And again, I I cite him a lot in my paper, so. Yeah. Oh, great, man. Can well, you point that, that out to me after we're done here? Yeah, I'll send you over the MP3. Um, yeah, I've been I've been kind of joking that you know doing this podcast, it it feels kind of like this virtual party where I just keep bumping into people in my citations, and then you're kind of bumping bumping into them in real life, you know, which is which is uh-huh. kind of funny. But yeah, McIntyre is one of those people. I think he said in the interview he's like a rash on the computer screen because he gets he gets cited so much. Because he's just all over the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I wasn't really sure. Like, so I've been I've been reading up like most of his stuff, and then I watched a couple of videos and presentations that he did. And he, to my sort of relief, he just seems like a really soft spoken guy. Like, I, I can't, you know, you kind of imagine this Viva being, you know, you being sitting there and, and getting grilled. You know, like mm-hmm. we're, you know, as many you imagine kind of gotcha questions kind of coming up. You know, mm-hmm. worst case scenario kind of things, and it's just. Watching him, he just seems like such a soft-spoken, nice guy. It's, it's tough to imagine him being anything but sort of cordial. So, yeah, yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting him. It's just strange, you know. You get it, you know, for whatever, for whatever reason, you you draw an opinion about people for no reason. You know, you just read their paper, or you see a picture, and you just assume they're a certain personality. He couldn't, he couldn't have been nicer. He's just the nicest guy. Um, he lives out in Nova Scotia. He's lived there his whole life. Um, mm. he just seems like a super, super nice guy. So who, so who else yeah. is going to be on there? How many, so you, there's going to be the internal reviewer. There's going to be McIntyre, some other people as well. Um, I, I, as I understand my supervisor invited to go, I don't think she will. It, what ended up happening with my, my thesis is I had the, I had a supervisor for about two and a half years and then he quit, 
about like a month before I was kind of before I submitted my my paper. So oh, wow. he was with me for the since the beginning. So I guess I should begin by saying this is a, do- a doctor of education degree. You do three and a half years of coursework first, and then it's an abbreviated thesis. Okay. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. But so, yeah, so you do the three and a half, and then it's like three years, four years of, uh, you know, you do your research and write your paper. And it's as opposed to a traditional PhD, which is 80, about 80,000 words, and a doctor of education is only 40 to 50,000 words. So it's a bit shorter, but uh, uh, what were they going to say? What was, I got lost. What was I talking no, about? No, I said. I see. Um, I'm I'm kind of in a different spot than you. I'm doing a bridge to the PhD, which is called a master's in research, and it's a twenty thousand word thesis. Uh-oh. And then I will hopefully keep my same advisors through to the PhD. Uh, but damn, dude, twenty thousand words—that's like eighty pages. It's still <laughs> it's still a lot. I mean, I mean, you, you talk about an abbreviation, even fifty, sixty thousand words. It's just a monster. I I, I mean, before we get into it, I kind of. I was thinking about this today, the whole, uh, the whole balance between burnout tolerance. Like I found in the past month, I've been going at it hard and I could go for like three days and then I need to take a day off. Then I can go for five days and I could take a day off. Now I can go for seven days, but by the seventh day, like I just want to quit. But then if I take a day off, I can come back. But it's, it's like almost like a drug addict. Like I feel like my tolerance is getting stronger, but, um, but, but man, the, the, it's, it's harder to read. Like when I, when I hit the wall, like after seven or eight days in a row, it's mm. like, I feel like I, that's it. I have to quit. It's a weird <laughs> thing. I don't know if, if you, because it's such a big project, right? It's been with you for so many years and months and days. Mm. I mean, you've been at this longer than I have, and now you're coming towards the end of it. How have you mm. balanced? Like, I mean, you, you must have those times where you just want to go on like a research binge. I'm just going to, you just get into it. Or then mm-hmm. there's days you're like, oh, I have to do this. I have too much work to do, but I'm just too tired. I can't think about it. And you don't want to do it. It's like all those, you know, the the emotion, uh, the roller coaster. How do you, how have you handled that? Yeah, well, so the coursework was really nice. I, well, nice is a, I guess it's. I would say the coursework was really nice because it was so paced. Like mm-hmm. every week, you have five or six articles you have to read, and then you have to post. You know, um, you have to post something on a thread that we have with our cohort, and then you have to do at least three comments, and everything has to be cited and stuff, but you have to do all this within the week and it's everything is kind of divided up into these week kind of chunks. And at the end of each module, there's nine modules at each end of each module, you have to write sort of a 3000 word paper as well. So everything, everything has a due date on it. So it's pretty easy in that it's like you either do it or fail. So you, it's not, you know, that it was tougher moving, moving to the, the thesis portion because now it's like, it, it, it technically this, I don't think I have to be done till 2022 or mm-hmm. even 23, even like, I think I have plenty of time, but it's just so easy to like, well, I, you know, I'll do that next week. Why not? You know, mm-hmm. that, that's where, that's what I struggle with is just kind of keeping the, uh, the fire lit underneath my, <laughs> my mm-hmm. rear end. If that means put it, uh, put it one way. Uh, I can do to what you were saying about uh, burnout. I can do about three or four hours a day. And then I'm kind of done. That's kind of how I work three or four hours a day. And then I start kind of, I don't know. So the first 20 minutes for me too is like, I can't quite get myself focused. It's 20 minutes of like, oh, I should check my phone. Oh, I should, should I clean those? Oh, should wash the dishes quick. And <laughs> yeah. 20, 30 minutes just to get into it. And then once I'm kind of into it and I hit that kind of Zen flow, it's like, okay, that's good for again, three or four hours. After three or four hours, I'm just like, nope, okay, done crack a beer or do, you know, put it on the Netflix or, you know, you know, maybe I should do that because I've been going hard. 
like all like a nine to five with a couple breaks. Wow. And I'm able to do it, but it is tiring. And I know the definitely the first two hours or three hours is the best. Maybe mm-hmm. I should start tra- but I just I have this debt like so my thesis is due April 9th, but my advisor wants it March 9th so she can give me reviews. And I'm uh-huh. I'm only like halfway done. I have like 40 pages to go. I have to write the whole discussion. So mm. I feel like I have to, you know, you know, because she just ripped my literature review to parts. So it took me two weeks to rebuild that. So it's like this, yeah, the three hours a day is the, you know, anyway, this isn't about me. This is about you. Uh, <laughs> so let's, let's, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you're going to end up interviewing you here. Uh, but uh, wow, that seems like a pretty harsh deadline for a 20,000 word paper. I, I, like the, the thing about the professional doctor is it's really nice. It, it works around like so three or four hours is enough because when I'm working, which I work part time at four different universities, uh, when I'm working, it's like I, you know, I get up, I go do my work. And then afterwards, I'll often just go to the university library and kind of knock out a few hours of homework there after I finish working. And, you know, when you're only teaching two or three classes a day, it, it, all, it, it amounts to your work and your study kind of amounting to eight hours a day. So I, I didn't, honestly, I didn't find it maybe as difficult as I think that I, I mean, when I was looking into doing it, I, I remember reading horror stories and, you know, people writing things like whatever you do, don't have kids or don't, you know, cause your life, your life is over once you start to, blah, blah, you know, this kind of thing. And I, I didn't find it to be that bad, I guess. Well, we'll see. I mean, if I don't, uh, if they fail me, then uh, in the next couple of days, if I don't pass this Viva, then well, maybe I'll have to rethink my attitude no, there. No, but- stay, no, stay positive because I, I, I'm kind of with you. I've, I've heard those same horror stories and people say, you know, by the time you finish it, you'll hate it. But I think you, what you're providing to the listeners is a good one. You know, as long as you keep a balance – you know, and you're mm. consistent with it and you pace yourself. I think that's the problem I'm having now. And there's probably people that are similar to me. There's that quick, there's the burnout factor mm. where you'd maybe do too much in a day. And this is, a, mm-hmm. this, is a, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And you, I mean, uh, you know what I mean? You got you to keep yourself fresh for a long period of time. This isn't just a, like a, a minor thing. This is a pretty big oh, commitment. You nailed it. And the, another thing is like, you, you, you know, again, with the weak sort of in, the weak chunks of work that is ex, was expected to do in the coursework, it's really nice because you, you finish the week's work, you know, and it's okay. It, it literally has a start and a finish time. So, you, you know, you, you post that last comment with the references and stuff and you're like, okay, well, that's the week. Now I can kind of pat myself on the back, give yourself a little reward, maybe, you know, again, crack a beer or go buy a t-shirt that you want or you know what I mean? Like just, you can... You can offset it with things, and you know it feels good. You, you finish that week's work. You, you hand in that thing. It's I don't know. There's it's not doom and gloom, and you know, honestly, it's you, you, there's a sense of uh, accomplishment, obviously, that comes along with it too. So, well, how long how long have you been in Japan? I kind of wanted to learn a little bit about your background. Oh sure, okay. So total, probably about twelve years. I but I, first I came here probably about fourteen years ago, and I worked. I just finished my. Uh, my BA in history came over to uh, Japan and I worked for Geos, which is an A Kiowa at the time that's since gone bankrupt, as I understand. But worked there for a year, and then I was an ALT at an elementary school for a year, and then I moved to junior high school ALT and started doing a um, a master's degree part time at Monash okay. University, in Australia. Yep. Uh, you know, applied linguistics, mm-hmm. right? And uh, yeah, I kind of got interested in that. Graduated that and started kind of getting my foot in the door at universities. And once I kind of got enough classes there, 
looked looked into doing a doctorate and yeah it's uh, nice you, i when i met you i i was kind of struck that you're you're one of the only people that i've met who's obviously lived in japan for a long time that doesn't seem like they have they've had the life beaten out of their eyes <laughs> you, know what I mean? you know what i mean you see someone that's lived in japan a little bit too long and there's like that dull look behind their eyes like they haven't gone back home in a while that you know that feeling you know you haven't been on and seen your friends back home or you know you're from canada or i'm from america you know you, you know dip back into the west a bit there's like that dullness there's something wrong um, and it can happen to all of us it's not you know so and the, other, the reason I brought that I was kind of I was looking on your Facebook and I think I saw your your father had made this post. He's posting all these pictures about you in a rock band and you having like lots of fun and then he's just kind of shocked that you're doing a PhD. So I guess it just goes that you you're able to find the balance, have fun, but you know you mm-hmm. can still grind out that you know the masters like you were working and now the PhD and what what's so what's next after after the PhD? I I mean. Yeah, well, is there another project yeah. coming up, or you're just going to relax well, for a while? You know, I would love to get. Uh, I don't know. Well, I'd love, I'm seeing a girl now, and it's kind of getting serious. So we might move in together, and that would be the first kind of time. And I've kind of been a Rolling Stone, living like a millennial. I'm, I'm an overaged millennial, is what I am. I really should, you know, settle down, and I'm going to have start a family or do something like that. I got to do it, you know, sooner than later. Uh, as well, I wouldn't mind finding something full time. I don't know. I've kind of come to terms with i think japan's probably where i'll live i don't i don't know i i guess i'm, I'm open to yeah yeah I, I frankly i wish i could answer what i had planned in the future but i don't i really don't and i don't think i ever really have and i, I don't know it's kind of how I, you know i live i don't know i i'd like to research i enjoy researching like um like what i learned what i learned about this is kind of my strengths and weaknesses as a as a researcher and i, I think i could maybe leverage that into actually doing some some research after this which doesn't isn't so let's say high stakes or demanding you know i'd, I'd like to sort of do it but you know, publish a paper a couple papers a year sort of thing I, you know but uh yeah are, are you going to look for that full-time tenure gig is that kind of what you're looking for yeah yeah i think so man that seems to be the way to go even uh even just something full-time i mean What's what's strange too is like I'll I'll finish this and then I'll still be working part time. I don't know anybody else. I don't know anybody else who has a doctorate and and is isn't working full time at a university. I don't. Do you? Do you know anybody? I I have heard of that before. Sure. Um, uh-huh. My uh, I, uh, the, the other guy who does these interviews, Chris. He went through a okay. period of time where you might have met him actually at some. Chris Haswell. Um, okay. He was working part time at Kusandai actually, and I think at that time he was working on his PhD. So I think some people they sort of they they cut back on their teaching to focus on the PhD. I don't think it's as uncommon as as you think. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know a lot of people too who some some uh, colleagues at Kusandai who work full time and they started working full time there with masters, and then the university like paid them to do a PhD and gave them sabbaticals to work on it and funded it and wow. stuff like that. I know. I'm like, whoa! I didn't even know that was a was a thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's let's jump into the paper that we're talking about today, and this is going to transition to a bit of a, a Viva rehearsal. So, the paper that we're talking about today is validating the language mindsets inventory, and you co-wrote this with Paul Collett. Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, Collett. Um, and I think you said that you won an award uh, for this paper 
in the in the jout um what's what's this called the the proceedings the jout proceedings yeah yeah the conference conference proceedings i guess the post conference papers i guess i think it was called yeah i when, <laughs> when i read this i actually thought that yeah why did you submit it here cuz i feel like this paper could be submitted to maybe more of an impact journal mm, i can see yeah, why well, i guess that's a double sided compliment like i can see why you won an award uh, yeah. But what what was your sort of thought process of, of going for the proceedings and not, you know, submitting to like the Modern Language Journal or something like that? Well, uh, you'll notice uh, Paul's name comes first, right? Yeah. Um, he was, yeah, he was sort of, uh, he sort of quarterbacked this whole paper, to be honest. He, I mean, we, we worked on the statistics, statistics together and uh, uh, basically he, like, I, I wanted to know how mindsets uh, factored up against TOEIC, but mm-hmm. he, he, he said that before we do that, we have to check and make sure, you know, that this, this instrument, the language mindset, in, in my language mindset index is like, you know, works and we have to make sure it, uh, if through factor analysis, we, through factor analysis, we can kind of decide if, if your data is valid or how it kind of stacks up and, you know, whether or not I they're model data. So, so I, I didn't even know when when I started doing this that we were going to do sort of a factor analysis, and he did it. And again, as you can see, it was it was actually pretty interesting. Like, should I go? Like, I'm wondering. I'm, I'm assuming your listeners haven't read the paper. Um, so we we expected. So uh, the original line language mindset inventory was uh, done by a couple of researchers out in Canada, uh, Manitou uh, Lou and Kimberly Knowles. Now, by the way, quick, uh, quick, um, I don't know if this is advice, but McIntyre and Knowles are, are quite good friends, I think. So oh, yeah. Yeah. he'll be definitely familiar with all of her stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, I actually, he, he recommended during, I think during the interview with McIntyre, he said you should interview Knowles. So again, it was that funny kind of thing. Cause on your, in your reference list for this paper, I saw, Kim Knowles, I saw McIntyre, I saw Sarah Mercer, I saw Gregerson. Um, so mm-hmm. some we choose some of the same dirt. We see some of the same people around, so it's kind yeah, of yeah. kind of kind of interesting. Anyway, so Lou and Knowles came up with a learning mindset inventory. This is more like a replication, or you are applying it to Japanese learners. So I see what you mean. So this is almost you had to do this paper first. You had to run these tests before you could do something else, which is what you really wanted to do for your PhD. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Right. Yeah. So I just make sure that they're, I guess that they're, we just want to check and make sure that they're kind of, their factors held and well, they didn't, but they did, they did to the degree that, that uh, growth and mindset, growth and fixed mindsets kind of those, those uh, ran along the same factors. And it was, it was that, it was through that kind of lens, which I proceeded growth versus fixed mindsets. So not sure how much, you in the, in the paper you said that Lou and Knowles had a three and six factor model, but yours was a four factor model. Can you just explain that quickly? Yeah. So they're uh, right. So there's there's three. There yeah they had a, a two, three, and six, and we had a two and a four. So and okay. the two two factors, of course, were were along growth and and fixed mindset uh, uh, pathways. Uh, their three and six was. Uh, what was it uh, second language? What was it? Uh, second language beliefs, uh, age sensitivity beliefs, and language intelligence beliefs. Okay. And then, the, yeah. And so then the third, what was the three? The three was the, oh, yeah, there was three, uh, 
think there was three items for each. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, so, and ours was the two against the growth and fixed. And then the, that split along two different two different uh, pathways. So we had two growth and two fixed. And two growth that we came up with was, what was the one I can remember here? Uh, the one was a ch- change uh, via effort. And the other one, the other growth mindset factor was change just via happenstance, I suppose. Okay. And then the then there are two the two fixed mindset uh, factors were one was age, and then one was just natural, uh, like age age sensitivity, and the other one was just natural, I don't know, uh, inhibitions or in yeah, to language learning, I believe. So your so your model was a bit scaled down. You found. Uh. Yeah, well, again, the factors just ran completely different, which was interesting. Like they they designed it to be to run along those kind of again the, the second the language. What did I say? The age sensitivity beliefs, the uh, second language, and the language intelligence beliefs, right? But ours again, it, it was it was really interesting. Oh yeah, here it is the two factor model with entity and incremental beliefs. Three factor was growth language beliefs, second language beliefs, and age-sensitive beliefs, and the sixth model factor representing incremental and entity beliefs for each of the three aspects. And so, yeah, but uh, again, ours ours did not gel that way. Ours, the only, ours only uh, matched up with theirs along the two-factor uh, achievement potential via hard work and mm-hmm. general change sure. potential. So students seem to answer questions that said, you can change your language ability if you work hard. There were, there were questions that said, if you do this, if you work hard, you can be better at language. And then there are other ones that said, language ability can be better. And people can be better language learners. And so that was kind of a general change potential, mm-hmm. right? So it, it, you can kind of look at that and think, okay, so they, uh, students, you know, interpreting those two, students could kind of, students kind of see, uh, uh, language learning as either something that can be achieved through hard work and diligence or something that kind of can be achieved via just favorable circumstances. For example, you're living overseas and you're with friends who speak language, right? Mm-hmm. So just general change. You can become – that's how the, the factors lined up, which is, again, is, is interesting because they did not – Lewin Knowles did not design it to be that way. It's just kind of like the, the way it was worded. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, it was kind of a – Really interesting uh, dis- discovery I found. And the, your the, your discussions about why you veered or why the results didn't really line up with Lou and Knowles was because possibly it was compulsory English classes. It was that um, one, and it was in they Japan. Were, yeah, they they were compulsory English classes. Yeah, that 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 could be that could be some something for sure. Um, I don't know. I think again, it, it could be it could be cultural. I know that's not a fat a fashionable word mm-hmm. to use, but like uh, I don't know, like uh, students might just see uh, like the idea of uh, language intelligence. This was kind of again, this was one of their factors. I mean, maybe Japanese people don't see don't see that. They they see more uh, just you know, it's it's a matter of effort. It's a matter of either again. It's a matter of either effort or being in favorable favorable circumstances. Intelligence isn't really so much a so much a factor, maybe today. I, w- I was interested because your the main findings are, are that you know growth mindset was prevailing. Mm. I, I thought 
I, I mean, I was really surprised by that because I, I would think a lot of students who are in compulsory English classes might have fixed mindsets. For example, mm. oh, I'm never going to use this or, you know, why do I have to do this or I'm not going to travel. So therefore I don't need to like even just a factor like that. It's like thinking, oh, well, I'm only going to stay in Japan. You know, Japan is becoming more isolationist, uh, as you know, and population is yeah. decreasing. It seems like the English proficiency level is decreasing year by year. I was yeah. I was surprised. I I really was. I I wouldn't have thought that you would have found overriding support or findings for growth mindset. Well, that's that's interesting because actually my thesis does not find that. Oh. Like skipping over to the thesis, uh, it like comparing the uh, let's say the students' TOEIC scores. So so what I did was I uh, let me just give you a quick a quick synopsis of my thesis here, okay. if that's okay. Is it, that's okay. We can jump over to that. Yeah, let's ju- yeah, let's jump over to that. What's the what's the name of the thesis? Uh, Revisiting mindset theory insights from EFL students in Japanese higher education. Okay. Okay. And so, uh, basically, in order to find out if growth or fixed mindsets played a role in uh, Japanese university students' EFL learning, I surveyed about 850 students at two universities and conducted interviews with. Um, uh, a broad range of about 11 students in order to kind of uh, organically figure out their attitudes and motivations and habits with regards to EFL learning. And as it turns out, mindsets play a negligible role, while it, actually growth mindsets play a negligible role. Fixed mindsets play almost no role at all. Hmm. And uh, effective factors such as nervousness and fear of making mistakes are far more pronounced, so much so that it was within the interviews, it was virtually only students who were able to conquer their fear that were able that were the ones who were able to become proficient. Uh, wow! So from a research perspective, I suggested in the end, I suggest kind of closing the door on mindset research in ESL in a Japanese context. And from a practitioner's perspective, I suggest implementing positive psychology into the Japanese classroom. And that's where uh, kind of uh, McIntyre kind of comes into my research is the positive psychology. Wow! That's that's amazing because my my uh, the main um, um, direction of my research is language learning anxiety. So that's that that that's interesting. So when you started veering, when you started getting those those findings or those responses from the interviews, mm-hmm. did you have to write a chapter on language learning anxiety? Because that's a whole new field. I mean, that's like psychology. I mean, did you have to go deep in there, or did you just you know you kind of stayed on the surface? Well, positive psychology is pretty new. I think it's only like 20 years old by most accounts. But language anxiety, I think Horowitz has been doing that for since the 80s. Is, is that about right? Yeah. A, did you bit. have to? Did you have to do a lot of research on that? No. Um, the way again, it was kind of just a finding that I found like through thematic analysis. So again, it was it was something I didn't expect, but it it was one of those themes that just kind of got uncovered, and so I. I said briefly that uh, anxiety has been shown to be, you know, counterproductive towards English language learning. And I didn't really go much deeper than that because, well, again, I mean, like, if you want to, I mean, McIntyre has written papers and papers about about kind of the negative effects of anxiety. You know, uh, it, it's, you know, it, there's, there's some scholars that says, you know, the kind of the anxiety is the fire lit under your butt that can get you moving. I guess that's right to an extent, but most, I guess the general consensus at this point is anxiety is, is unhelpful. And so I I basically left it there. I mean, it wasn't something that I was looking to research. It was kind of one of the, 
unexpected results. And so it kind of didn't get, it didn't get much attention in my lit review or anything. So your, your main finding is that people should stop researching growth mindset? Uh, growth mindsets in, in language learning in Japan. Okay. Mm. So Lou and Knowles did it in, uh, you know, investigated uh, mindsets in Canada and they found, right. They found that it, it was something. So it could, it's very, what's interesting is it could very well be that it's a, uh, very well be the case that it is a cultural thing, right? Maybe it has to do with, again, not fashionable to say, but kind of cultural Confucian sort of underlying values and ethics Mm -hmm. that sort of uh, put effort ahead of uh, sort of intelligence and the idea of you, you know, he's a smart kid. He's, he's not so bright. It's like, no, 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 no. Anybody can be intelligent if they put forth the effort is kind of the, one of the tenets of, you know, Confucianism. And I think maybe that is what, uh, maybe I'm speculating here, but maybe that's what, uh, um, uh, means that, uh, fixed mindsets and growth mindsets don't really play a, a role. I mean, everybody, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's start it. Let's jump into this mock Viva. Viva. Let's do it. Is that going to be the first question? Pronounce this word spelled V I V A go. And it's like, it's like, <laughs> well, I'm calling it a, a defense, maybe too. I, I, I say Viva. To, most people don't. Uh, viva Voce, I think, is what it's actually. V i v a v o c e. I think okay. is what. But again, I don't know. It's a it's a defense, really. I I, I guess I don't know. <laughs> all right, so let's. All right, you kind of gave me, uh, you know, a general summary. So let's let's jump into maybe from. I I, I sent you the list. This is like question five. Um, oh, okay. Why, why did you under, why did you undertake this thesis? Okay. Uh, well, the, um, <clears throat> when I was, while I was doing the coursework, I came across Carol Dweck's work with mindsets and immediately kind of, it was a bit of a eureka moment. I immediately recognized in myself, um, a fixed mindset. I realized that I, <laughs> I have a fixed mindset. I, I come across when I, when I fail at something, and again, a fixed mindset is usually only, uh, usually only de- detectable through failure. Like, so somebody with a fixed mindset, uh, when they come across failure, will say, oh, I guess I'm just not good at that, right? Whereas somebody with a growth mindset, and this is a good heuristic, will say, I guess I'm not good at that yet. Okay. So they're not okay. quite, right? So somebody with a growth mindset recognizes that they just, they need to work harder to become, right? Whereas somebody with a fixed mindset thinks, you know, no, no, this is, this is not for me. I, this is not, I'm just not a math guy, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of how they think. That makes sense. Yeah. Fixed, fixed mindset subscribers are also more, uh, more likely to take uh, criticism personally as a personal insult, as opposed to growth mindset people who, who just seem who see, you know, criticism as, okay, well, again, I need to work harder. Right. So I saw in myself sort of that, that fixed mindset idea, even in the band, you, you made reference earlier to the band I was playing. And, um, I never even realized that like you, it sounds, sounds so, so, so stupid saying it in retrospect, but I never even realized, you know, I just assumed people who are good singers were just born good singers. People who are good guitar players. Well, they obviously, they know what they're, you know, they just have a talent for it. And that's just what it is. It didn't even occur to me that like, it was and actually wasn't until after Carol Dweck that I started doing kind of online vocal lessons to try and get my my singing better and it to my mind it has got got better but again even with with more to the point though was with uh, my my Japanese learning I found a lot of times I would avoid uh, speaking Japanese with uh, Japanese people simply because I didn't want to be ousted as somebody who wasn't that good at Japanese so I would sort of 
avoid, which is you know so typical of a fixed mindset subscriber. And so from there, I just obviously I wondered, well, to what extent is this kind of hamstringing my students? You know, like are they are they going through this same thing? Are they avoiding? Are they avoiding trying to speak English because of this, you know, the same reasons that I am? And so that's what kind of got me thinking about it. No. How, how does your work link to the work of others in the same or related fields? Oh, uh, well, again, Lou and Knowles, I mean, I literally just lifted their instrument. <laughs> they, they gave me permission. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't steal it, but I took, you know, I used their instrument. And uh, from there, I just, I kind of embedded it into a... Uh, a survey with kind of demographic questions as well as uh, questions regarding students' proficiency. So, uh, so again, yeah. well, I guess I guess what I mean is, is this is your work related to growth or fixed mindsets in other fields besides language learning? Uh, no, no, absolutely not. And again, that's where there's not a lot of not a lot of external validity that I can claim from claim here. I mean, again, it's my research is Japanese language learners in a university English, mm. English learning context, but I, I can't just because I didn't find mindsets to be working here. That doesn't mean that, you know, mindset theory is bunk or anything like that. It's, it's just that again, here, it's not obviously, you know, I found effect, effect sizes so small that it, it, okay, clearly this isn't something that's affecting them as much as, you know, obviously I found it to be affecting me, you know, somebody right. from the West. So again, it, through that lens, it, it certainly could be something thought, or at least I suspect it's something cultural. But again, I I, I can't really say. All right, so let's jump into the method. You said you use the Lou Knowles uh, scale. So why did you choose that method or that scale over over others? Well, uh, it was the only one. There has yeah, there has been so little research in uh, mindset and language learning to date. Or at least, at least there had been when I started my research in 2016. I could only find, I think it was it was Lewin Knowles's paper, and then there was another one by Mercer and Ryan, I believe, and they did more of a qualitative uh, analysis with uh, Japanese students and Aust and Austrian students, and it was kind of just interviews uh, to kind of suss out mindsets, and and they found as well that Japanese students tended to have uh, more growth mindsets kind of across the board than did the the Austrian students. Uh, but again, there was there was so little, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm veering off here. But no, it's okay. There, there was so little, uh, there was such a little amount of research, and that's another reason why I sort of got into it, to be honest. Mm. So what weaknesses in the results might arise from the way in which you performed your data analysis? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> weaknesses. Uh, let's see here. Uh, I think I wrote down some weaknesses to. Uh, <clears throat> I should have the survey was a bit. There was too many questions on the survey. I I, uh, I should have uh, as well. I should have uh, been a little bit more explicit with the statistical tests and the, and the timeline with which I was going to uh, with which I was going to do my uh, do the research. What what ended up happening was uh, the. Uh, the, qual the, the quantitative results, that is, the surveys I, I expected were going to feed into the interviews. That is, uh, like, um, and, and it, 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 as, it, as it ended up, uh, it, again, it was supposed to be a mixed methods, sort of, again, qu first quantitative, then qualitative uh, 
uh, project. But the way it ended up was it kind of ended up just being two separate but loosely related uh, research projects in a sense. Um, I guess. Well, can you can you explain that? How so? How like the, give us the timeline and and then how how you envisioned it and then how it turned out. Oh, okay. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, <clears throat> so originally I did the survey and, uh, then took the survey and all the data and I sat down with Paul Collette and we kind of looked at it and we realized, and then I realized that, okay, he's got, we got to do this factor analysis. We got to do a bunch of stats before we even get right, this. Well, let me jump, let me jump in and ask about the survey. So how, how many, how many items on the survey was it? Can you tell me about the survey and, and how you built, what was the construct of the survey? Sure. Okay. So there was basically three parts to the survey. There was the language mindset index, which is at 18 items. That's and that's little... the low knolls? Yes, yes. Okay. And I okay. had that translated into Japanese and back translated and I got that all. Okay. Right. And then the second part is I asked them to rate their their proficiency, their self-rate their own proficiency in grammar, vocabulary, um, reading, writing, overall. There were seven different metrics, right? As well, I asked them their TOEIC scores, their TOEFL scores. And uh, at the end, oh yeah, oh yeah, as well as some, and the third part was sort of some demographic information. Where did you grow up? Right, okay. sex, you know, all this kind. Of, and then in the end, I asked, I left uh, it open. If I said, if you want to do a one-hour interview with me, Michael, um, I'll pay you a thousand yen. And uh, if you're interested in doing that, then uh, write your email address, and I might contact you. And uh, that actually ended up being an interesting metric because whether or not students were interested in doing you know, an interview almost, almost, uh, signifies sort of a willingness to participate in the uh, willingness to communicate in a sense. I don't want to use that phrase cause that's, sure. kind of, but, uh, you know what I mean? So yeah. it ends up being those three main metrics in which I, I kind of, uh, gauged proficiency. So again, it was TOEIC scores, their self-rated proficiency and their willingness to participate in, in interviews was the, uh, three metrics. What was, the, I, what was the number or the percentage of people that were willing to participate in an interview? So eight, I think we, I surveyed 850 students. I think about 110, 115 were willing. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot more than yeah. I thought. Yeah. Well, you know, let me rephrase that. 115 uh, left their emails. So okay. then I, there I sort of, from there I sort of uh, did an ad hoc sort of uh, ad hoc. I took all their growth mindsets and I subtracted their, or I subtracted their their fixed mindsets and got kind of a number for each student, as well as I was looking kind of at their TOEIC scores and stuff. And I just tried to invite as as broad a range of possible of students to do interviews. So I had students who were really like high mindset, medium mindset, low mindset. I had some students who were high proficiency, medium and low proficiency. And I invited, again, as, as broad a range as possible. I invited 24. 12 replied and nine said they would do the interview. So, okay. uh, you know, yeah, I did. A, I, I later on did, ended up doing a second round of interview two two interviews as well. But again, so just because they wrote their their email, you know, it doesn't mean that they were willing. It, you know, so, about half of them, it would seem were actually willing. A second round of interview with the same participants? No, two different participants. Yeah. OK, so can and, you can you explain that you so. I, I guess I'm trying to figure out the timeline and how, like you said, it you. So I'm with you now. We had the one survey, and then you had the uh, nine interviews. You analyzed yeah. that data, and then what happened next? Yeah. So I had the uh, the, the yeah the transcripts did transcripted did the theme thematic analysis. Then we it was at that point that we kind of got around doing the stats and realized okay mindsets are negligible here right 
And this oh, was kind sorry. of after, after I did the, uh, the qualitative sort of analysis. So that's, you know, again, I, my, in my mind, when I set out to do the research, I would have had the statistics and all the quantitative stuff done before moving mm -hmm. on to the second half, but owing to time and just my ignorance regarding the amount of time it takes to do statistical analysis, honestly, in, in my mind, starting at when we began, I thought it would be a matter of just kind of putting the numbers into a computer and pressing enter. You know, right, like, right. Almost, I just, I, I had such little understanding of what, you know, statistics is and was. So, but anyway, so eventually what ended up happening, so then I, I ended up having this uh, thematic analysis that said, okay, effective factors and, uh, you know, grammar translation classrooms and uh, kind of contribute to a fear of making mistakes, which is all done for the purpose of university entrance exams, this kind of cycle of fear and that doesn't work. That seems to be the uh, the main themes that came up in the in the qualitative section, or in the and in the quantitative, it was basically well, mindsets don't do anything really, right? So at that point, I had these two kind of semi conclusions, and I was looking at both of them, going, okay, what what do I do from here, right? Um, it was then that I kind of started. I was just rereading the data and hoping something would kind of jump out at me, you know, drawing concept maps and kind of mm -hmm. all those kind of tricks to try and get something. And it was then that I was looking at the language mindset index that Lou and Knowles made. And I realized that all of the growth mindset items, that is all the statements that students are to agree with or say to the, to the degree which they agree with, right? Mm -hmm. All of the growth mindset ones were decidedly positive statements, whereas mm -hmm. fixed mindsets were decidedly negative. So much so that if you took the word uh, fortunately and you put that in front of a fixed mindset statement, it made the sentence sound really, really strange. And if you took unfortunate, unfortunately and put it in front of a growth mindset, it just sounded weird, right? So, for example, unfortunately, if you work hard, you will always get better at English. That's a, a growth mindset statement. So my conclusion there was like, whoa, okay, wait a minute. It's very possible that this, this instrument is kind of, uh, I don't know. Is it actually measuring mindsets? Hold, you know, hold the phone because maybe it's just measuring students' kind of overall optimism or, or pessimism re regarding, you know, regarding English language learning, I thought, right? Mm. So from there, I was like, okay, uh, maybe they're just, it's just re positivity. And again, the, the, the uh, effect sizes I got were pretty negligible to begin with, right? So I'm like, okay, well, that really... Well, what do I go from here? So I started positive and I started thinking back to, I remember reading something about positive psychology. And so I did kind of a Google Scholar deep dive on positive psychology and uh, realized, wow, all of these, like it, it seems to really, so Seligman's three pillars of positive psychology are emotion, uh, character traits, and uh, institutions. And these are all kind of, all kind of uh, inroads in which you can implement positive psychology, I suppose. Or positive a positive education, and so they go. All of these crash clash directly with all of the problems that my students in the uh, interview section were having. Right again, these were all effective factors. I'm I'm nervous. You know what I mean? That the, the grammar translation classroom again, an institution, is uh, for it kind of encourages students to be silent and quiet and just listen to the the sage on the stage teacher. Right. So, so I kind of I kind of did this, that. It was kind of a, a eureka moment. And uh, yeah, after that, I just realized that I guess positive psychology addressed all, if not most of the uh, effective issues that I kind of uncovered in the thematic. So I, I, the second half of the paper, I basically advocate for uh, 
the implementation of positive psychology for that reason, and maybe even the bringing of mindset research under the umbrella of positive psychology, because again, I, as it, particularly in an e, a Japanese EFL context where mindsets were, again, like I said, just flaccid, right? There was, there was nothing really there. So that is the meat and bones, I suppose. Of, uh, so future directions as far as uh, data collection, implementing mm-hmm. positive psychology, what, what would your, what would be your advice for other researchers or what is something that you might want to undertake in the future? Okay, well, empirically, I would say again, just because I find just because I found out the mindsets didn't work in the Japanese university context doesn't mean that it wouldn't work in, let's say, a Middle Eastern context. So go ahead and you know maybe uh, try and measure mindsets in in other places. You know, maybe it is a cultural thing, and if it is, that's that's fascinating, really, right? <laughs> it's a kind of really fundamental psychological tenet, and you know, if if that's if that's the case, well, that's that's interesting in itself. So I'm not saying don't research mindsets. Uh, that was kind of the, I would say the main empirical or, uh, theoretical kind of takeaway as well. Uh, I found, um, okay, I'm starting to be wrong. Um, rather, and the, from a practical perspective, again, that's where I would, you know, that's where I would, uh, advise, let's say positive psychology to, uh, the implementation of positive. So I would that uh, implementing positive psychology was maybe a, a practical, uh, practical finding. I suppose again, just mainly because it addressed uh, the effect, so many of the effective factors, and you know, effective factors as well as uh, institutional and uh, trait factors that I found in the thematic analysis. So that would be the future. Again, implement positive psychology or do some research in that vein, uh, as well as. Uh, Look to either shut the door on mindset EFL Japanese context, or uh, do mindset research in other cultural contexts. Is what I would say. So, would you want to create a new scale that incorporates positive psychology with the the LMI, or would you want to sort of correlate? Would you want to correlate positive psychology with the LMI, or would do you want to? do a comparison between changing the, the way the LMI was constructed as far as like positive and negative uh, vocabulary items? Yeah, that's a good question, man. Uh, I would say, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I would probably, again, I, mindsets, I, I can, I can, I did find again that the, again, the, the, the mind growth and fixed mindset statements were just, again, decidedly positive and negative, but that doesn't mean that they're not, that they're not measuring mindsets. It just means that maybe they're measuring something else there. I'm not really sure. Uh, to go back and, and redesign the whole instrument. Uh, I don't, I don't know if I would, I don't know if I'm interested in that again. I think, <laughs> I mean, if, if someone else wanted to, I'm sure, but, um, I guess I would try to, uh, yeah, there, there was some. There was an interesting study that actually McIntyre did recently, where he got his students to uh, sign students who had like in, in Chinese English classes who were dealing with kind of affective anxiety. He got them to sign a uh, a paper as well as thumbprint or fingerprint a contract that basically said, "Look, I promise to speak you know X number of times in this class during the year," and and, and it seemed to be that it. Once the students had all signed this kind of in front of each other, it was it, everybody seemed to be. It seemed to alleviate, in the end, sort of the anxiety that students felt. Uh, oh. I, something in, something along that vein, I would like to kind of look at again. I I I'm, I, I kind of think mindsets is maybe I've 
maybe I've been looking down the barrel of mindsets for too long too. Maybe I'm just tired of, I don't know. I think for, it's just future research for myself, probably something in, in positive psychology, I, I would, I would think. Because from what, from what you said, there was that shift after you did your initial data analysis, right? And uh-huh. you saw that there, it wasn't really coming up like you thought. And then you did the shift to positive psychology. I would think that you would want to do some sort of empirical analysis between positive psychology and growth mindset or mindsets and mm. see like where, where, you know, you know, where they correlate or, or, you know, do they validate each other or, you know, where, where do they intercorrelate? Um, yeah. that, that's, that's kind of what I was wondering if you, if that crossed your mind as you started writing the second half of your, your paper. Absolutely. And in fact, there's an, enti- there's a chapter there called mindsets revisited. It's like 10 page chapter where I basically try to look at the, where they overlap and how they're different and, 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 uh, like the two theories and, uh, you know, they're both, uh, if um, I could go over a couple of those, if yeah, you're because interested, that, that's actually the most. I mean, I'm not. I'm obviously I'm not your reviewer, but just me subjectively, that would be the most interesting part of the finding. Yeah. Well. Okay. Well. First. First thing. The first thing to, to mention is again that. Uh, um, let me see here. Sorry. Let's see here. Yeah, so they both they both have uh, so the biggest kind of the biggest breakthrough in positive psychology is was uh, Frederick and Frederick and Frederickson's theory of uh, uh, positive and negative emotions, which was that uh, positive emotions uh, allow students to broaden and build, meaning they, they they're more open to experience, they're more open to gathering sort of social and uh, intellectual resources when they're in a good when you know when you're in a positive emotional mind mind frame, whereas negative emotions kind of correlate even to an almost to an evolutionary evolutionary extent to kind of the fight or flight response, which means we mm-hmm. shut down our attention, we narrow our scope, we don't really right. There's only we we think of uh, ways to escape. That's what we're kind of right. So that's kind of uh, the difference between positive and negative emotions. Now that if you think about it and and growth and fixed mindsets. I mean, it's interesting. They're both kind of binary sort of, uh, you know, one, one's obviously good. One's obviously bad. They, they over, they overlap sort of in that way. Uh, one of the biggest differences, as I mentioned earlier, is that as far as language learning, there is just a marked, uh, lack of any sort of real, uh, other than Lewin Knowles and a bit by Mercer and Ryan research done in language learning and uh, mindsets. It's just a very under, research field. And again, so that's why I say maybe, you know, investigating in a different culture might be, you know, a good idea. But on the other hand, positive psychology is kind of blowing up right now. Like it's, uh, I think one yeah, paper, really is. Yeah. yeah, one paper re- referred to it as an English garden in full bloom. And that, that's just with, you know, in second language learning. So it, it seems to be, it seems to really with second language learning just really kind of dovetail quite, quite nicely. Uh, Interestingly, both sort of come from Martin Seligman theories. He is he originally uh, he originally um, put forth his learned helplessness. Are you familiar with that? Learned helplessness. Learned helplessness theory, where students just learn to, uh, you know, in classrooms to just not. Yeah, that's that's kind of, that was kind of if you trace back where mindset theory kind of started, it was with Seligman's uh, learned helplessness so well, so long ago, and oh, the field okay. of yeah, in the field of positive psychology. 
opened up in about the year 2000 and Seligman was was there as well. He was the he was the author of that sort of uh, landmark paper that is kind of recognized as the birth of positive psychology. So both, both are Martin Seligman kind of having to do. At the same time, I I kind of scoured Google looking for looking for uh, overlap and there was very little. No one really kind of no one really kind of delineated the two. And some, I remember I read one, one paper that was talking about different positive psychology research methods, and they included mindsets as one of them. So maybe that maybe it is sort of like uh, tacitly being brought under the umbrella of positive psychology. I'm not, I'm, I'm not really sure, but. Um, well, that's, that's where it gets uh, interesting. I mean, to relate it to my research, which is language learning anxiety, I mean, Horowitz in, in the 80s classified test anxiety as a component of language learning anxiety. And so since the 80s, everyone says, oh, well, test anxiety is part of language learning anxiety. But then a test anxiety researcher would say, no, it's not. It's totally it's totally separate. Um, yeah, yeah. So then, like you said, that you, you found this, this field where these two – well, these two fields converge and they both mm-hmm. have the impetus from the same researcher. And so, you know, wh- where do you start separating the components and, and – uh, mm-hmm. It sounds like it kind of went in a little bit of a circle for you at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, again, again, like, uh, well, not unlike the research itself. Like my, like what I found again was mindsets. You know, basically negligible as far as like proficiency scores, and uh, positive psychology would would seem to uh, address everything that seems to be kind of standing in students' ways. So, uh, you know, as far as becoming proficient you- language. Do you think the reviewers are going to have an issue that you didn't do a data collection with positive psychology scales? Uh, you know, I don't, uh, possibly, but I'll say this: this is a, uh, as a this is a professional doctor that I'm doing, so it's it's it does kind of imply that there's a, a practical element that that I should be including, like something to do with practice. It's not like a PhD would be, you know, just contributing research to the to the to the field. And doctor of education asks you to do that, but as well, there should be a kind of a, a practical element as well. And that's, that's what that is, I suppose. If that makes okay, sense. So, all right. So the pedagogical implications. So as a, as a teacher, how are you going to apply your findings in the future? Well, if you know, positive psychology, if you look, you can, there's a bunch of websites you can go to that have ideas that you can kind of Im- implement into your classroom. So for example, things like, uh, Writing exercises, which which talk about or which students are encouraged to uh, write about, uh, you know, their, their dreams for the future or someone they admire or what they think the word love means. Right. These kind of things that just, again, in positive psychology is the focus on everything that goes right in life as opposed but what, to. I guess the uh, question is the your your contribution. So as far as taking what you did in your in your your uh ed what is it ed doc doctorate of education what yeah, how yeah. how will you specifically contribute like what what's something that you could contribute to the field as like a um oh. because you're coming from another place like i i know people are reading about positive psychology and people are reading about mindsets but you you you've done a deep dive on both so mm. is there is there some some venn diagram where you know you michael can contribute to the classroom as sort of like you know your own individual contribution so yeah okay if with that empirically speaking again all i can really say like mindsets is where i kind of come again before i would uh 
before I did this research, I would do things like, uh, as as recommended by Carol Dweck herself, like <clears throat> don't ever compliment a student's, for example, intelligence. Compliment their effort. Do you know what I mean? And this mm-hmm. this kind of uh, complimenting a student's intelligence uh, fosters fixed mindsets because then students just assume they're either intelligent or not, et cetera, right? Well, you know, so as it turns effort. out, if mindset, yeah, yeah. So that, but again, it turns out that mindsets are not really the issue here. And it turns out that students already, for the most part, recognize effort to be key to language learning, right? So that's not such, right? Again, so yeah, in Japan, in the university classroom. So again, Mm -hmm. my research, my contribution might be something to the the tone of closing the door, in a sense, on kind of spending you know exerting effort in in fostering my you know growth mindsets in japanese classrooms because clearly you know my my empirical findings are that they're not that uh they're not that relevant again positive psychology i didn't actually research anything positive psychology i just found a lot of negative psychology again a cycle of fear having to do with the uh, grammar translation classroom uh, silence, you know, uh, kind of even things with the Confucian kind of cultural, the teacher is the sage on the stage and the students are the passive receptacles. This kind of cycle, you know, it just, it just really, really bumps, bumps up against what, you know, the tenets of positive psychology, which are right. You know, everybody, the teacher is a facilitator of language and, and, uh, uh, everybody should be, you know, everybody should be speaking kind of communicative language teaching, uh theories as well I, it's that makes sense so again i, well, I can't yeah Go ahead. well yeah i mean yeah i think um i mean we can kind of move on I'll, i'm gonna put this paper away but like i don't know if that helped you or not but i, I as we talked before we did the show i was i was kind of just gonna ask you the questions and just go off from my own feeling um i don't know if that helped uh-huh. you prepare for the viva or not but i'm sure you will get you know i i i guess it's a good experience because then you you're getting questions where you feel you're you're like maybe you thought i was putting pressure on you but i was really just trying to ask a question but like if you were able to validate your reasoning and you stayed true which you consistently did um Mm. like i i guess i was trying to find more and you and then you were saying no 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 that's this was the main finding so for me i at the end of that interview or the end of that viva viva i could understand uh your research project is that is are you foreseeing something like that where you know they're going to be digging into you in certain ways and, and that's what you're worried about you're not sure where the jabs are going to come from yeah uh what i'm most worried about is and i hope uh peter mcintyre doesn't listen to this maybe before the viva in two days because no, i'm hoping that, yeah <laughs> i'm hoping that uh the, the two the two parts that i'm most worried about is i think they'll probably dig down into kind of my, my methodological approaches Do you know what i mean my my uh my theoretical approach, my research methodology, uh, you know, a, a lot of that stuff, as well as a lot of the, the statistical reasonings. You know, if they ask why did I, you know, why did you d- decide to do a regression here as opposed to, uh, you know, those are the questions that I might be kind of tripped up on. Um, I mean, I, but I, I think I, I think the one thing you can stand behind though is something that I've got myself in trouble in the past as far as like. I kept talking. I kept asking you about, you know, what, what, what aren't you going to create your own scale, or aren't you going to correlate this or correlate that? And you just kept coming back to the fact, it's like, no, no, this was the uh, the validated scale I used was already, you know, has already been peer reviewed, already published, and that's a really good argument. In yeah. most fields, they say, you know, you know, don't start from scratch. You should use what's already been used if it's already been validated. So I thought that was a, I thought that was a good argument. 
it kind of, you know, it makes sense. I mean, then you can, you can argue that point as far as with the statistics too, if you're replicating other people's studies and you're replicating the way other people had done it before, I think that is a valid argument Uh in in science, isn't it? I mean, if if you did something crazy where you're doing something no one's ever done before and then you're you're drawing findings on that, I think you're, you know, you have some weaknesses, right? But it doesn't sound like you did that. You replicated a study that's already been done. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what losing? What I guess what another thing that's original is I I is is pitting the minds the mindsets up against uh, proficiency scores. I don't think Lou and Knowles actually did that. They just uh, they just looked to see if students had growth or fixed mindsets essentially. And, uh, so I don't think they used a metric that used you know checked their grades and their actual proficiency. Um, so that that was sort of original I think as well. Um, now this. Uh, um- this this episode won't be released until April, so it'll be kind of interesting oh. when you when you when you. I mean, I'll send it to you before that, but um, if you go if, it, if you go back and listen to it in April when this is all said and done, I wonder how you feel about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, right. Well, I'll probably have forgotten all about it by then. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, uh, I, 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 I once I handed this thing in like about two months ago you got to wait for about a month and a half before they tell you when your Viva date is. And so that month and a half, I literally just did not even look at it. I was just, Oh God, please. Oh, good. Good. Anything but this for the next while, you know, you just been kind of staring at it for so long. It's just nice to get away from it. And uh, yeah. (laughs) All right. Last, last question. I know this is, again, this is not topical because when people listen to this, it'll be April. Who do you got in the Adesanya, uh, John Blahovich fight? (laughs) <laughs> oh, Adesanya! Adesanya, easy man. He's the master. You think this is too fast? Too fast? He's the Bruce Lee man. He's the guy. Yeah, he's. Uh, I mean, Silva. You know, Spider Silva gave him the passed him the crown, and for good reason, man. That guy. He's 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 huge for a middleweight. He doesn't. Yeah, he's huge, man. I, yeah, Adesanya, I, all the way. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, the paper that we talked about before we got into the dissertation was validating the language mindset inventory. And that was with Paul Collett and uh, yourself. Uh, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Oh, man, it was, it's been great. And I, I really appreciate you, uh, move, you know, changing the schedule in order to be able to do this before my Viva, because it, this has been incredibly helpful, man. I appreciate your questions and uh, this, yeah, just m- making me kind of rethink and even just talk about them in real time is just huge for me. So I really appreciate this, man. Thank you. Well, good luck on the Viva. And just talk about how great Nova Scotia is. And I'm sure that'll make McIntyre happy. McIntyre. <laughs> yeah, good idea. <laughs> if you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.